I'm surely grateful to Pastor Brian for the privilege to stand again in this pulpit where I stood for literally thousands of times going back to 1979. We've been retired now uh, just over one year. I want to thank you for the marvelous send-off you gave us. It was over the top. And Kim and I are eternally grateful. Since uh, I retired, God has opened many doors for me to preach. Just give you a quick report. In God's great grace, providence, I've been able to preach more than 40 times in seven states. And been in a lot of churches. When I'm not preaching, I've been going to hear some of the preacher boys out of our church that were trained here through our partnership with Southern Seminary and some other friends in town. Uh, we've been in many Baptist churches, of course, but some Presbyterian churches, Lutheran, Pentecostal, African-American, I've heard uh, some good preaching, quite frankly, better than I anticipated. But we've been here many Sunday nights. We get back sometimes in time to come to Sunday night worship. I've heard Pastor Brian a number of times on Sunday evening. And I can say to you, the best preaching I've heard was Brian Payne. I'm thankful that Brian is my pastor. I first uh, met Brian when he was four or five years old. I got to know him when he was about 30. And in the last uh, year, I've grown very close to our pastor. We break bread often. And I rejoice what the Lord is doing here at Lakeview under his spirit-filled, Bible-based, Christ-centered ministry. Take your copy of God's Word and find 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just three verses of Scripture today. Verses 9, 10, and 11. As we think about the radical, life-changing power of the gospel. The radical, life-changing power of the gospel. In their book, Resident Aliens, Stanley Howerhouse and William Willimon penned these words about society, the role of the church in society. And I quote, the most interesting, creative, political solutions we Christians have to offer our troubled society are not new laws, 
advice to Congress, or increase funding for social programs, although we may find ourselves supporting such national efforts. The most creative strategy we have to offer is the church. Here we show the world a manner of life the world can never achieve through social coercion or governmental action. We serve the world by showing it something that it is not, namely a place where God is forming, I love this last phrase, God is forming a family out of strangers. May I suggest this morning that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the United States is too much like the world. We have too many church members today who admire Jesus but don't obey his commands. A hundred years ago, evangelist Wilbur Chapman said this about the American church, quote, it's not the ship in the water, but the water in the ship that sinks the ship. So it is not the Christian in the world, but the world and the Christian that constitutes the danger. All of us here at Lakeview know that we live in dangerous times. The moral meltdown that our society is experiencing today accelerates day after day at warp speed. Weekly, if not daily, we learn of some new perversion, some new way to mock God, uh, some different way to bring reproach upon our land. Years ago, evangelist Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham, said, and I quote, If God doesn't judge America, he needs to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. May I suggest this morning that the hope of mankind is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gospel of salvation has been entrusted to the church. To you and me, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a treasure which has been given to us. And we must not only boldly proclaim it, but we must equally boldly live it as the sons and daughters of God. So I want to suggest this morning that the gospel is powerful. Paul said to the church in Rome, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So think with me this morning about the radical life-changing power of the gospel. The radical life-changing power of the gospel. Our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11, just three short verses, but so much truth here for us. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If I was uh, preaching through Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, I would have already told you this at the very outset of that first sermon, but 
Since this is not a series in 1 Corinthians, I'm just sort of parachuting in on this one text in chapter 6. Just a bit of background. The ancient city of of Corinth was noted for its debauchery, for its wickedness, for its evil. It was the place that you would go to if you wanted to just express yourself in all kinds of perverted manner. Around A.D. 50, the apostle arrived in the city of Corinth, bearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half, preaching the gospel, winning people to faith in Christ, baptizing them, and incorporating them into the church, which he himself planted there. But it was a tough place to plant a church because it was famous for its debauchery. Uh, there in Corinth was the, uh, the temple of Aphrodite, which is noted for its uh, temple prostitutes, of which there were a thousand. Uh, there are easier places to plant a church, but the Lord told us to make disciples of all the nations, and so Paul goes to Corinth in obedience to the call of God. And what we find here in this first letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth is that there were problems in the church. In fact, the most problem-filled church planted by the Apostle Paul was the church in Corinth. And if you'll read 1 Corinthians, you'll see that Paul addresses all manner of both theological and ethical issues and questions that needed to be addressed. But God rewarded Paul's efforts. And from this background of these Corinthian people, many of whom were caught up in those Uh, wicked lifestyles, the Apostle Paul plants this church. And now many have come to faith in Christ. And as was read earlier in this service, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Christians aren't just nice people. Christians are new people. They've been radically transformed by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit of God. But apparently... Some time had passed, and some in the congregation there in Corinth were slipping back into their old sinful lifestyle. And so the Apostle Paul addresses those issues. And he appeals to them that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a religious club, but it is a new society. A society made up of the sons and daughters of God, of men and women who put their trust in Jesus, having repented of their sins and have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so I want to suggest this morning that what the United States of America needs, what Auburn, Alabama needs, more than anything else, is for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be everything that Jesus redeemed us to be. And when the church will be the salt and light which God has called us to be, it will affect the larger society, both in our local communities and to the ends of our, of our witness across the land. So here's the sermon this morning in a sentence. If you just want to wrap it up in one sentence and tune me out, here it is. Quote, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a colony of heaven on earth comprised of sinners who have been made saints by the gospel of God's saving grace. 
Well, you would think these uh, members of the church in Corinth are not saints, but if you go and read chapter 1, the first verse or two there, Paul calls these Corinthian church members saints. In spite of the fact that they weren't living up to their calling as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the world is not our home. Uh, There's a gospel song that says we're just passing through. And we know that to be true. We don't often live like it, but we know it to be true. We are, the scripture says, 1 Peter, we are aliens and pilgrims and sojourners. We're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. We're, we're anticipating the, the, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to usher in his eternal reign. But in the meantime, we are called to bear witness to this world that the only hope of bettering our society is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who always and who alone can and does transform one sinner at a time into a saint. Now our text divides itself into two parts. The first part is a serious warning, and the second part is a glorious reality. So think with me about our text this morning. Uh, first of all, about the serious warning. Verses 9 and 10, we, we, we learn of a serious warning which the church must hear and heed. We can't heed it until first we hear it. We must do both. Uh, Let's look in verse 9 and 10. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is a serious warning given not to the world, not to unbelievers, but to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ located in Corinth. Verse 9 again, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's asking this question. Surely you know this. Those who live wicked lives will not inherit God's kingdom. Not everyone who thinks he or she is going to heaven will be in heaven. The scripture says, The wicked will not be a part of the kingdom of God. You may have a version that says the wrongdoers or the unrighteous. It's one and the same. Admittance to God's kingdom is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Uh, Notice this word inherit here. Salvation is not something we work for, but it's something we inherit. It It is the gift of God given to those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. We do not work for our salvation. We receive it by faith. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus, For it is by grace through faith you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest someone should boast. If we could work for our salvation, we could brag about it. We could get puffed up about it. We could say, look at me. I've I've gained right standing with God through my good good deeds. And the, the Apostle Paul says, absolutely not. There's no way for a sinner to be reconciled to God apart from the grace of 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson said, and I quote, thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign that I have no understanding of the gospel. So you think you're good enough to go to heaven on your own merits, then you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. The gospel is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That those who would repent of their sins and put their faith in the finished atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ could experience the cleansing grace and mercy of God and receive from him the gift of salvation. There is a kingdom that God has. And Paul says here in verse 9, he says, the wicked will not inherit this kingdom. If you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, which God is establishing on earth now and which he will complete someday at the end of the age, if you're going to be a citizen in the kingdom of God, you must submit to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ over your life. It is a call to lordship to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, the answer to every command is yes, yes, yes. It's not just saying, Lord, Lord. It is submitting to his lordship. In the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, by the greatest preacher who ever preached, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus said toward the end of that sermon, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out many demons and proclaim many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So apparently it's possible to engage in seeing miracles take place. It had to be by demonic power if Jesus never knew you. Satan counterfeits uh, all that God does except the blood of Christ. He's got a counterfeit church, counterfeit gospel, counterfeit way to be saved, be justified. So it's not just the, the words that we say, Lord, Lord, Lord. No. Do you obey the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's, that's, the, that's the question of the hour. So admittance into God's kingdom is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, we inherit salvation. We do not work for salvation. We submit to the lordship of, the, of Jesus Christ. And in our text for our consideration this morning, look again in verse 9. Do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't be misled by false teachers and false teaching. Now, Satan is the deceiver. And we see Satan's deceptive ploys all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when God placed 
that first man, Adam, and that first woman, Eve, in the garden, that paradise of God that we know as the Garden of Eden. And, and, and Satan came and, and said, did God say? Questioned the veracity of the word of God. And tempted Adam and Eve to take of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and when the Lord came and confronted Adam and Eve about their disobedience, Eve said, and the serpent came and deceives us. Satan is a deceiver. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, do not be deceived. The Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And if you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. But if you sow to the spirit, you will reap life. But Satan will say to us, no, if you'll just, if you'll just listen to my, my ideas, my suggestions, my temptations, and sow to the flesh, sow to the, to the carnal nature, the, the, the lower fallen sinful fleshly nature that all of us are born with when we come into this world and, and disobey God, then you'll find a great life. And, and, and Paul is saying to the Galatian churches, no, 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 don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Now, what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11 are categories of sin here that Satan would say not only to lost people but to those people in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ this is this is the way you should order your life now let's just look at them quickly look in verse 9 uh, do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor sexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor slanders, excuse me, drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's ten distinct and specific categories of sin that Paul the Apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, people who live in this manner, who have this lifestyle, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's look at them one after the other. First of all, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. The phrase translated here in our English version, sexually immoral, comes from the word pornos, which is the word from which we get our English word pornography. It actually means fornicators. And uh, in this particular case, it's talking about sex relations prior to marriage, what we would call premarital sex. What some of the younger generation today just call hooking up or worse. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's you, hear the word of God. Next, idolaters. Now, an idolater is just someone literally who worships images. The Ten Commandments speaks clearly about graven images. And it may be a religious idolatry. I myself have been to India. I've walked the streets there in those 
large cities. I've seen on every street corner these grotesque, man-made, physical idols that people worship. Now, we're too sophisticated for that. But on the other hand, in secular U.S. of A., we, whether we realize it at, night, at times, are oftentimes guilty of worshiping automobiles, houses, clothes, celebrities, athletic heroes, find ourselves envious of those people who have more than we have materially. It's a devotion to anything or a person more than devotion to the Lord God himself. And of course, these material idols, they, they never satisfy. The psalmist said in Psalm 49, 16, and 17, Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. We can desire these things where they never, ever satisfy and so we see here not only the sexually immoral in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and we also see not only the idolaters, but next the adulterers. Now, adultery is sexual relations on the part of a married person with someone other than his or her spouse. Clearly in the Ten Commandments, the Lord said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, now the next two uh, categories of sin listed here have to do with homosexual sin. After adulterers, we find male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. You, you may have a translation that says those who practice homosexuality. But there's a distinction here literally made uh, between what we read here as male prostitutes and what we read here as homosexual offenders. A male prostitute is the, the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Typically, it's the younger person. A homosexual offender is the active partner in a homosexual relationship, typically the older person. Literally, this phrase translated homosexual offender is the word sodomites. We once had laws in our land against sodomy, but those have all been struck down by the United States Supreme Court. May I say this morning, there is a court higher than the U.S. Supreme Court. It's the court of God's justice. And when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 1, he described homosexual practice and lifestyle with words like shameful lust, unnatural, indecent and depraved. We live in a world that is now asking us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ not only not to condemn that kind of lifestyle but to celebrate that. But faithful Christians who are faithful to the clear teaching of Holy Scripture can never, no never ever celebrate that kind of lifestyle. It is a deadly destructive lifestyle in this life and certainly in the world to come. 
So, so Paul is writing here to the church in Corinth, and he says, these are the kind of sexual lifestyles that will, people who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the, the male prostitutes, the homosexual offenders. And then in verse 10, thieves, those who steal, those who are dishonest. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and said, He who has been stealing must steal no longer. The most honest people on planet earth ought to be the people in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we ought to pay our taxes without trying to hide something that the government doesn't know about. Because we got a new nature. I, I, I think of... Uh, Zacchaeus, you can read about it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Jesus was passing by. Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus. He was a, he was a short man. He, he, he was a tax collector, and tax collectors were notoriously corrupt in the first century world of Palestine. He was despised by fellow Jews. Nobody wanted anything to do with Zacchaeus. We climbed that sycamore tree to see Jesus when he passed by. And when Jesus came, came by, Jesus stopped, looked up at Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, you need to come on down. from. I'm going to have lunch with you today. And the scripture says that he went to Zacchaeus' house. We don't know what transpired inside the house of Zacchaeus as they had lunch that day. We just know that he went there. And when Jesus came out, he said, uh, Zacchaeus said, uh, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to pay back fourfold. And Jesus said about Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. When a man or woman who is a thief, who is dishonest, who is guilty of stealing, comes to genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he becomes an honest member of society. That's the difference that Jesus makes. Now next, after thieves, the greedy. A greedy person is someone who's never, ever satisfied. Always needs more. No matter what he or she has, just needs a little bit more. You got a 2,000 square foot house, you need a 3,000 square foot house. You got a 3,000 square foot house, you need a 4,000 square foot house. You got a big bank account, you want a bigger bank account. Always more unconcerned about the incredible needs to fuel and fundle the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Just more for myself, more and more. Greedy, never satisfied. The cure to that is to fall in love with Jesus. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Having food and clothing, let us be content. That's a checkup for all of us right there. If you've got to have more than a, a, a love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and clothes on your back and food on your table to, to, to be content in this world, then there's some work of sanctification that needs to take place in your life. Because if you have Jesus and, and, and daily bread and clothes on your back, you have everything you need to be content in life. And so we have to slay this, this, this sin of greed that, that says, I've got to have more and more of the things of this world, which I remind you are passing 
away. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But I want you to look with me quickly in uh, Mark chapter 10. A very familiar account uh, of, of an encounter that Jesus had with a rich young man. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let's give this young man credit. He asked the right question. And he asked it in the right way. He said, inherit eternal life. Just like we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, inherit the kingdom of God. To inherit eternal life is to inherit the kingdom of God. And uh, verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God himself. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. Verse 22, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. That's one of the saddest, most tragic statements in all the world, word of God. Jesus said you can experience eternal life in the kingdom of God, but apparently this young man had a problem with material possessions. And he, 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 he was asked by the Lord Jesus Christ, lay aside your material possessions and embrace me by faith. And apparently he counted the cost and decided to walk away. He walked away from Jesus in order to pursue material wealth. What a sad reality. What a tragic decision. Remember, Christians are not noted for what we get, get, what we grasp, what we can accumulate. We're to be noted for what we give. For our generosity. After all, was it not Jesus who said it is more blessed to give than it is uh, to receive? Indeed it is. In Proverbs uh, 11, 24 and 25 say, One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper, and he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. God, God wants us to be generous and open-handed, and God will take care of all of our needs. But God is looking for a generous people to make up those who are citizens in his kingdom. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're talking about the radical, life-changing power of the gospel. It was a radical life change for Zacchaeus when he encountered Jesus. 
And when any one of us truly encounters the Lord Jesus Christ, we get a radical life change. For some, it may be dramatic and and sudden and immediate. For others, it's going to be more subtle and slow, but it, it takes place. If there's no life change, there's been no real salvation. And Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, don't be deceived, those of you who are living this way. Now, back in verse 9. Excuse me, verse, verse 10. Uh, 9. After the thieves and the greedy, uh, neither the drunkards. There's never, there's never occasion for a child of God to get drunk. Paul said to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, he says, because it leads to debauchery. People do things in a drunken stupor they would never do when they were sober. Uh, Solomon in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 said, wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, whoever is led astray by them is not wise. The prophet Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15 said, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so they can gaze on their naked bodies. May it never be said of the people of God that that would be our case. And my counsel to you is the best way to never let that happen is just be a total abstainer like I've done for 74 years. When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't need those liquid spirits to give you a high. God, the Holy Spirit, will give you all the joy you can ever handle. So the drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look in 1 Corinthians, uh, again, uh, look in verse uh, 10. Nor the slanderers. You may have a translation that says those who revile. Those who speak falsely to damage another person's reputation. New Testament uh, scholar William Barclay said, and I quote, there is a sense in which slander is the most cruel of all sins. If a man's goods are stolen, he can build up his fortunes again. But if his good name is taken away, irreparable damage has been done. Many men and women who would never dream of stealing think nothing, even find pleasure in passing on a story which ruins someone else's good name without even trying to find out whether or not it's true. There is slander enough in many a church to make the recording angel weep as he records it. We must guard our speech so that we are never found guilty of slandering another person's reputation. Uh, But not just drunkards and not just slanderers and not just homosexual offenders, but next, swindlers. A swindler is a con artist. A swindler is someone who obtains money for himself or property for himself by deceit or fraud. It is a form of stealing. Now, a person who would never rob a bank might sell a 
a used car that he knows to be a lemon and presented as something that is not, that's unacceptable for the sons and daughters of God. So what we find here in, in verse 9, 10 different categories of sin. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's a good start. Now look in verse 10. In verse 10 we read, uh, such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. We saw that same phrase in verse 9. So not once but twice, Paul says, those who live this way, even though they may be considered members in good standing in the church in Corinth, or even members of good standing in some church here in the United States, including Lakeview Baptist Church, God forbid, they, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is very clear. Not every person who thinks he is a citizen of the kingdom of God is truly saved. And this is a serious warning that the church must hear and heed. Furthermore, this serious warning comes to every single one of us who make up the church. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us to examine ourselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Do you ever do that? I mean, we're, we're admonished to do that, to periodically just search our hearts, ask the Spirit of God to put the searchlight of His Word on my life, my lifestyle, my thoughts, my actions, my behaviors, my reactions, to see whether or not I am truly a member of the body of Christ. I'm truly in the faith. We're to test ourselves. See whether we're saved. Because everyone who lives this way, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some of you are probably thinking, that's some pretty stout stuff right there. Well, it is. I didn't make this up. I, I just explained the Bible. I don't try to write it. Some of you are thinking, well, what about King David? I mean, he did worse than what's found here. Well, we know that, that King David committed adultery with the wife of Uriah. Her name was Bathsheba. And in order to cover up his adulterous act, he had her husband sent into the front lines of the battle so that he would be killed, so that David was guilty not only of adultery, but he was guilty of murder. And after all, Pastor, uh, doesn't the Bible say that, that uh, David was a man after God's own heart? What about King David? That's a good question. Well, here's the difference about King David and apparently what Paul is dealing with here in the church in Corinth. When David was confronted by the prophet Nathan with his sin, he didn't try to justify it. He didn't try to explain it away. He didn't blame it on Bathsheba for bathing out in the open where he could see her. David said, I'm the man. I, I've sinned against the Lord. And you can read about his broken heart in Psalm 51. 
the thing that makes David distinct and make, I think makes him one of the great men of the ages is when David was confronted with his sin, David repented. He was a great repenter. He turned from his sin. He didn't go back into his sin. Paul says here to the Corinthians, don't be deceived. Now here's the way Satan operates. He says, uh, he whispers to us, not audibly, but he has his ways to whisper to us. Oh, it's just a small matter. After all, the Bible says God is love and God loves sinners as much as he loves saints and God understands your struggle and and it's okay, and you, you can engage in these kinds of lifestyle behaviors, and it's, it's really no big deal to God. Uh, the, the problem with that is it, it denies the absolute holiness of God. We're not at the mercy of Satan. We are the sons and daughters of God, born of his Spirit, who dwells within us and who will fill us and possess us and give us supernatural power to overcome all the schemes of the adversary. Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, so if you think you're standing, be careful so that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We all experience temptation, Paul says, but he goes on to say God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way of escape so that you may stand up under it. The power of Satan is is much, much less than the power of the Spirit of God, and we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, and we can never, ever justify our lapse into sin except it is our own self-centeredness. You see, it's one thing to struggle with temptation. And we will struggle with temptation until God calls us home. It's another thing to surrender to temptation and let Satan be Lord. However, if you are surrendering to these kinds of lifestyle behaviors that Paul points out here to the Corinthian church, if, if that is your life, hear the warning of God here in this passage, the wicked will not, will not, will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is a pattern of the lifestyle for you, you better check your own salvation and make sure that you really know Christ. This is a serious warning that we must hear and heed. But I want you to see in verse 11, there is a glorious reality that the church must wholeheartedly embrace. Let's just not stop at the serious warning. But let's look at the glorious reality that the church must embrace wholeheartedly. Verse 11. And that is what some of you were. That you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What were some of those Corinthian church members like? 
Paul said, uh, you were, some of you are sexually immoral and you're adulterers and you're greedy and you're slanders and you're swindlers and you're thieves, homosexual offenders. But there's that, that key verse there. Look at that uh, verb there. Just four letters. W-E-R-E. Where? Past tense. Not A-R-E. Some of you are, but some of you were. It's a glorious word. It's a hopeful word. It's a positive word. It's an encouraging word. It's a blessed word. It's a powerful word. Because their lifestyle in Christ is past. It's history. It's no more. What What does the Apostle Paul say here? He, he said, uh, that, that may have been my, your history, but it's not your present reality. And it shouldn't be your present reality if you're walking in the Spirit. There, there are three words here uh, in verse, uh, verse 11 that change everything. Washed, sanctified, justified. Look in the latter part of verse 11, but you were Washed. They were cleansed of their moral filth, made pure by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, washed. Prophet Isaiah said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was true of the Corinthian church members is true of every believer since then, down to this very hour, washed by the blood of Christ. And not only were you washed, you were sanctified. There came a time when you were sanctified. To be, you've been set apart for God. The, the Lord says, be holy as I, the Lord, am holy. God, God is, is sanctified his people for, to, to live holy lives, to, to walk in victory over temptation. To reflect his holy character. The Scottish reformer John Knox said, and you've heard me say this many times in the past, you and I need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. The wages of sin is death. Sin kills, it destroys. Destroys intimacy with Christ. And it's true enough that when we sin, sin does destroy, it does kill. It kills the one who commits the sin, but I want you to see this morning, it's more than killing the one who commits a sin, but when we sin, we kill those around us. Ask the wife and sons and daughters of a drunken husband and father about the destructive consequences of the sin of drunkenness. Ask a person whose reputation has been slandered about the destructive consequences of the sin of slander. 
Ask an elderly couple whose life savings have been swindled by some con artist about the, the sin of swindling. The scripture says those of us who are in Christ, we've been washed. All our sins washed away. And then he says you were you were sanctified. You were justified and washed. Justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a big word, justification. It's a good word, though. We need to know it. I know most of you do know it. Negatively, it means in the sight of God, because we've trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, negatively, we're, we're not guilty of any sin. It's when, when, as if God looks at us and sees us through the blood of Christ, and he sees us just as if we never sinned. That's good news right there. But positively, it means that God has declared his sons and daughters righteous. It means we have right standing with God. And this right standing with God is effected through the substitutionary atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. God takes away our sin and gives us his righteousness. He imputes to us. He credits to our account all the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ who was tempted in every way and yet he never one time yielded to temptation. He was that perfect lamb of God who came to take away our sins. Three great words here. Washed. Sanctified. Justified. Such is the radical, life-changing power of the gospel of the grace of God. It is the power of God to save from the guttermost to the uttermost. As God's people, we've been washed. We've been washed of all the filth of sin removed from our lives. We've been sanctified. We've, the strongholds of sin that once gripped us have now been broken, and we've been released to live holy lives. We've been justified. Our identity of sin has been overcome, been replaced, and we are now not sinners, but we are saints. We are in Christ, his holy ones. Positionally, we are righteous, not wicked. Practically, we are holy, not profane. And morally, we are clean, not filthy. I say again, that is good news. This is who we are. And Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, and Paul is saying to Lakeview Baptist Church today, and since you are this, live in a manner which reflects your reality. How can this be? Well, we, we read here uh, in uh, verse, verse 11, this washing, this sanctifying, this justifying is in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We see here in this, this 11th verse, the triune nature of God. It is the work of God the Father, God the Son, God the, 
God the Holy Spirit. We see the word God there, that's a reference to God the Father. We see the, the word there, Lord Jesus Christ, that's a reference to God the Son. We see the Spirit, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Our salvation has been affected by the work of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father planned salvation in eternity past. God the Son accomplished salvation in space and time on Calvary's cross, and God the Holy Spirit applies our salvation day after day, enabling His sons and daughters, His saints, to walk in humility and holiness before Him and before this world. That's glorious. That's our reality, and we need to embrace that reality for who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. In this world, there are two kinds of people, two classes. And in the church, that'd be the saved and the lost. But I want to further subdivide the, the saved into two classes of people. There are those in the church who serve sin and there are those in the church who fight against sin. And every one of you who names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ here in one of those categories, either you are serving sin your lower, fleshly, carnal, worldly nature. Or you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be fighting sin. Those who serve sin surrender to sin. Those who are, who, who are, who are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, they are fighting sin, their sin. I pray daily, Lord Jesus, give me a hunger and thirst for righteousness and give me a holy hatred for sin wherever it's found, but especially if it's found in my own heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. If you want to see God and experience God and walk with God in intimacy and fellowship with him, you must come as a holy person before God. Sin is a cruel master which leads to death, but Jesus is a gentle master who leads to freedom now and to heaven for all eternity. Those who serve sin may have fleeting happiness, but they live without real peace and joy, and they face eternal misery. But all who serve the Lord Jesus Christ experience joy and peace in the Holy Spirit now and eternal life in heaven after this when this life is over. And the question of this hour is who do you serve? I'm persuaded most of us in this room are the sons and daughters of God, saints of God. I'm also persuaded there's some in, our, in this room today they don't even know the Lord. They need to know Christ. But of those who know the Lord, there's some who've surrendered to a sinful lifestyle. You've not found it to be satisfying or rewarding. You found it to be miserable. I want to tell you, you'll only find peace and joy when you fully surrender to Christ as Lord of your life. This is these three verses. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10, and 11 are some of the most profound statements in all the Word of God about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if we went to the church in Corinth on 
a Sunday night and they had a testimony meeting, you'd hear men and women get up and say, well, I was an adulterer, but not anymore. I was a homosexual offender, but not anymore. I was once a greedy person, but not anymore. I once had a loose tongue slandering people, but not anymore because I've been washed and sanctified and justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God. Imagine with me a scene, the portals of heaven. There stands the angel Gabriel checking people in. And uh, here comes, here comes a man seeking admittance to heaven. And uh, the accuser of the brethren. That's the devil. He tries to intercept this this Christian. And as the angel Gabriel is about to let this person into glory, Satan, the accuser, says, I'm appalled that you would let such a creature, such a vile, miserable, wicked creature into heaven. Do you not know, angel? The kind of lifestyle this man lived on planet earth. He was unfaithful to his marriage vows. He was a drunkard. He was a liar. He was a thief. The angel Gabriel looks in the book of life and finds his name. And the angel says to Satan, yes, he was all of that and Much, much more. But he's been washed by the blood of the Lamb. He's been sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's been justified through faith in the finished, substitutionary, atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is the radical, life-changing power of the gospel of God's saving grace. Who deserves to go to heaven? No adulterer deserves to go to heaven. No homosexual offender deserves to go to heaven. No slander deserves to go to heaven. No liar deserves to go to heaven. No morally upright, upstanding person desires to go to heaven because all of us are failed, flawed creatures. Sinners by birth and sinners by choice, deserving of nothing but the holy wrath of God. Not one of us deserves to go to heaven. But any of us, And all of us, no matter how grievous our sin, no matter how flagrant our disregard to the ways of God, 
who repents of his or her sin and humbles his or herself before the Lord Jesus Christ and comes to the cross of Christ and pleads for mercy will fail to receive mercy and forgiveness because there at the cross we find cleansing and justification and sanctification. That is our message. That is the radical, life-changing, life-transforming power of the gospel of the grace of God. And I dare say of all that list of sins listed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there are some in this room today that fit in every one of those categories at some point. Not all of us at every, every point, but that's the kind of people we are. We are not the people of the self-righteousness. We are the people of God who understands the great, great grace of God in our utter inability to make ourselves right with God apart from what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.